0: Mentioned last week a little bit about uh, what happened in Romania in 1989 and how God changed that nation, really, in a, in a seemingly overnight. Well, the fact is that God had been working in Romania for a very long time, and the, a lot of those churches that were small were very strong believers. They were people who really loved the Lord, and they followed the Lord, even in a very, st- well, st- a place of struggle and pain. <clears throat> and one of those pastors, As soon as the uh, as soon as the 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 kind of the wall fell, if you will, as soon as that Ceausescu was was dead, Christian missionaries from all over the world flooded into Romania, and a lot of Baptists, a lot of people from uh, different cities here in the United States were going to places in Romania, and they needed people who would be. Uh, translators, and so one of those pastors who was a translator, he became very popular with a lot of the different ministries and ministries, including some really big churches in Southern Baptist Convention, and so the the convention brought him to the United States, and he was going around to a bunch of different churches, and he was doing his thing, you know, talking about Romania and what God was doing in Romania and how amazing it was to see this 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 you know regime fall and see God. On the throne of Romania, again, it was just the neatest thing for some people to hear because the average American in Romania, where's that? Is that where the Romans live? I don't know. It's just one of those a long ways away kind of places. Well, this pastor was here, and as he was going back to the airport, a well-known pastor, if I called his name, most of you would know who he is and where he was pastoring and everything, but this well-known pastor was riding along with this translator, this pastor from Romania, And this American pastor says to him, well, what do you think of the American church? And this Romanian pastor got real quiet, rode on for about five minutes and didn't really say much. And so the American pastor said, "Um, I asked you a question, are you thinking about it still or or do I need to explain what I meant? He said, oh, I know what you meant. I just wasn't sure you wanted to hear the answer. He said, well, no, I I don't care if it stings a little. I want to know what do you think, from your outside perspective, what do you think of the American church? You've been in a bunch of them now. You've been in some big ones, some little ones. You've been in the conventions, because he went to several state conventions while he was here. And uh, he said, well, if you really want to know, I'll tell you three things I observed about the American church. Number one, American Christians don't pray. Well, that stung that pastor, because he's the pastor of a great church, a praying church, a, a going church, a ministering church, but... From the point of view of this Romanian pastor, American, American Christians don't pray. So that American pastor swallowed real hard, and he said, okay, what else? He said, well, American Christians don't attend church. They think they've got, done God a wild favor when they show up on Sunday morning, and the rest of the time, they don't care. Now it's really beginning to sting, this preacher, this American preacher, he's, well, you know, I, I can't deny that. I mean, we'll, we'll have 750 on a Sunday morning and 200 on a Sunday night. You know, as maybe you're right. And so he said, what's the third one? Do I, well, I want to know? And the, the guy said, well, listen, I'm a translator. I translate for people all the time. And when people first started coming to Romania, there was a word that people used almost everywhere they preached, but now that word has gone out of, out of vogue. Now the word is commitment. American Christians want to commit They commit their life to Christ. And the American pastor said, yeah, what's wrong with that? That's what you want to do. Commit your life to Christ. He said, no, that's a new word. 25 years ago, nobody preached that. Nobody said that. Nobody even used that vocabulary because 25 years ago, when people first started coming to Romania, Romania, what they said was surrender. And when the word surrender fell out of the vocabulary, guess what replaced it? Commitment. Well, what's wrong with that? I like commitment. Yeah, everybody does because commitment leaves me in charge Commitment is so much nicer and so much gentler and so much friendlier than the idea of surrender. Because surrender says, here, I'm here, whatever you want me to do, Lord. Commitment says, tell me what you want me to do, and I'll tell you if I want to do it. You see the difference? We're going to look today at a section of Scripture that's going to very, I think, graphically demonstrate that. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter number 8. We're going to follow Jesus on further north as He's been leading His disciples They started off at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. They worked their way up around the eastern coast of the sea. They stopped there in Bethesda last week, or Bethsaida, I should say. And now they've worked their way on up the Jordan River to a place of the villages around Caesarea Philippi, as we're going to see here in just a moment, as we begin reading in about verse number 27. And this was the place, if you've ever get to go to Israel or if you've ever been, this is one of the favorite places. Jeff, you've probably been here. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. They actually take you to a place in the rock where the Jordan River, as it's beginning, is bubbling up out of this rock at a place they call Banius. And it's, it's a beautiful place. In fact, Sonia and I saw our first um, critters there. You know, those little. the Bible talks about conies, or the Bible talks about uh, rock badgers. We saw some. They were playing over there on some of the rocks. They were badgers. They, were, they told us not to mess with them because they would bite us. So we didn't bother them. But this is where Jesus and his disciples are. They're walking along, and as they walk along the road, we're going to see as we follow them now what they had to say to the Lord and what the Lord had to say to them. Open your, uh, as I open here in chapter number 8, verse 27, Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now we're going to read the rest of this chapter, but I want to stop right there because I want you to see, as we go through this entire section here, all the way down even to chapter 9, verse 1, first of all, I want you to see the questions that confront us. Because Jesus is going to begin here with questions that confront his disciples. Anyone that wants to follow him, he's going to come to you with questions. There are going to be questions that confront us if we want to follow Jesus. And so that's the first thing we're going to see. But then I want you to see from the man's side of the the situation, the quibbles that challenge. Now, quibble is just an objection. It's a a question, but it's more of of a pushback. So we want to see the questions that confront, but then the quibbles that challenge, and then Jesus is going to share with us the qualifications that confirm as we finish out this section of Scripture. So first of all, let's take a look at these questions. Because Jesus was such a master teacher. Most of the time he taught by asking a question and letting people think about it. Now we do that, try to do that at least in Sunday school. We do that in uh, Diving Deeper. The idea is to to give you a question so that you can begin to think about it and ruminate on it and chew on it. Because if I can ask you a question and you can come up with the answer on your own, you know what you're going to do? You're going to remember that. You're going to remember it because you came up with it. it. Because it was your answer. So Jesus wants his disciples thinking. And he starts with kind of a generic question. And you see it there in verse number uh, 27. Who do they say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? Or what are folks saying about me? He just asks them kind of a general generic question. He's not asking right now for a conclusion. He's asking for information. Who do they say that I am? And they give an answer that's kind of generic and general. In fact, as I read, read this the first time, it kind of reminded me. I don't know if how many of you ever watched The Family Feud. But that's kind of what this reminded me of. Is here, we got 100 people surveyed, top five verses on the board, top five answers on the board. Who do men say that I am? And they started throwing them out there. And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And, and some people say Elijah. Uh, in, in one of the other places this is recorded, they said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's all jovial. It's all convivial. They're just happy. They're just kind of walking down the road until Jesus gets to the next question. Because he leaves behind the general kind of, hey, who do they say? Now, now, now I want to know who y'all say that I am. And by the way, if this was the Oki translation, that's what it would say here. It doesn't say you personally, individually, like he's talking to one of them. He says, who do you guys, who do y'all say that I am? Because all of a sudden, he's not playing family feud. He's not looking at them with, with this kind of general information kind of a thing. It's very in their face. Here's the $64,000 question. Who do you say? that I am. Because for this, there is a right answer. There may be 10,000 wrong answers, but there is one correct response. And Simon Peter's the first one to click his buzzer and get in with the answer. He says, you are the Christ. Now that word Christ means Messiah, Savior, the one that they were looking for. This question happens to be the most important question that you will ever face here on earth. And make no mistake, everyone born on this earth will face this question who do you say that i am and jesus is asking that of each and every one of us and i said before there may be 10 let's say 10 billion wrong answers but there is one correct response In fact, let me cover a few of those wrong answers, not 10 billion of them, but just three or four of the wrong things that people say. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? There are a lot of people that will come back and say, oh, well, we think that Jesus was an interesting historical figure. I mean, after all, we, we date our calendars by the, the day that he was born. Uh, we, 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 we think of him as, as a great spiritual teacher. Well, you can think of him as an interesting historical figure, and he may be that, but that's not going to help you when it comes to the judgment day, and God says, what did you do with my son? And you say, oh, I thought he was an interesting historical figure. You can believe that and never see heaven. Somebody else might say, well, I think Jesus was a great prophet. In fact, all of the Muslims, because of the Quran, actually mentions Jesus. They believe that Jesus was a great prophet. Now, they don't believe He was the Son of God. They don't believe that He was born of a virgin. They don't believe there were any miracles performed by Jesus. But they do believe and they confess that He was a great prophet. You can believe that and still not see heaven. Some people in our world are asked that question, they say, oh, I think Jesus was a really good teacher. I mean, think of the, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, look at how wonderful that is. That's, Jesus was a really good teacher. Well, you can believe that he was a good teacher and never see heaven. You see, well, those are all true. He was a great prophet. He was a gifted spiritual leader, good teacher, a historical figure. What's wrong with those answers? Well, What's wrong with all those answers that you can believe all of those about Jesus and still be lost. You can still be an enemy of God and believe that Jesus was a great prophet. You can still be a stranger cut off from the promise, even though you know a lot about Jesus, because it's not enough to have a Christian community. It's not enough to have a churchish culture. You know, we used to call this a Judeo-Christian nation. I don't know what we call it now, a mess, but I know that... It's not enough to have a churchish culture. It's not even enough as a a church member or a person that comes to a a congregational space like we do. It's not enough to have a Christ-like consciousness. Every man, woman, boy, and girl has to come to that moment of answering that question that Jesus posed to his disciples that day. Who do you say that I am? And and even people who've never heard a sermon are going to face this question. Even people who've never been in a church house are going to face this question. And we can know that because everybody on the face of the earth has the witness of creation. Everybody can look up and see the stars. Everybody can see the clouds as they travel by. the beauty of creation speaks of a God. The complexity of life speaks and cries out, there is a God, hey, the size of creation is another indication. There's somebody bigger than this entire universe. And the thing that gets me is how things have to work together. symbiosis, where this life form cannot live without this life form, or this thing can't exist without this thing. And God created it that way so that He created them both at the same time or neither one of them could exist. It's it's amazing to me that scientists can look at symbiosis and they still don't see God. But that's because Romans 1.20 Explains that, says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's Romans 120. They're without excuse because they can see creation. But even if you don't come to a conclusion about God based on creation, listen, he also gives us the witness of our conscience. Do you know the very fact that you can tell right from wrong? The very fact that you feel some things are unfair, that's proof that there is a God? Because He gave us that conscience. The very fact that we can label anything as evil. You know, there are those people who, they won't call the Holocaust evil, but they'll call Walmart asking five extra cents for gasoline, that's evil. You ever notice how that works? It's funny how we may not all agree on the things that are evil, but all of us think that something's bad. Something's really evil. Where does that innate understanding in our hearts come from? The idea that there is an unfair tells us that we all believe there is really a fair. The fact that there is genuinely an evil means that there has to be a genuine good. The very existence of evil proves that there is good. The very existence of an enemy proves that there has to be a God. Because if there wasn't something that was ultimately good, someone who is ultimately the the, the epitome of good, you would not know what evil really was. So once again, people are without excuse. In fact, I want to go back to chapter 1 of Romans, the verses 18 and 19 say this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. You've got it right inside of you. God has made sure that your conscience is there telling you that there is a God. God has made sure that, your, that creation is there telling you that there is a God. And creation and conscience both testify that there's someone greater than you, someone to whom we will have to give an answer. But, but also that there's the Bible. Not only creation, not only conscience, but we have the confrontation of the Scriptures that God gives us the Word of God because it's in Scripture that we learn that we're all guilty of sin. As it says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. They've all gone after their own way. It's Scripture that tells us that that guilt carries a death sentence. It's Scripture that says that Jesus, though, loved us so much that even though we were guilty and, and, and on our way to a death sentence, Jesus died in our place and rose again for our sanctification. That's what Scripture tells us. But what you say in answer to that question, who do you say that I am, will determine your eternal destination. Though Jesus came and He will save anyone who will turn. If you will not accept His gift, you can still be His enemy. You can still miss heaven. So the questions that confront. But let me show you next what Simon Peter came back with the quibbles that challenge. I want to read a little bit more here, verse thirty and thirty one. Excuse me, and following. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Rebuking the Son of God? It's just amazing. But turning around, this is Jesus, turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. That's one of the most amazing places in Scripture to me. Here, Simon Peter kind of takes Jesus by the arm, takes him aside. Just try that with God sometime. But that's what Simon Peter did. He was the man of the hour one minute. One minute. He was the first guy to buzz in for final jeopardy. He had the right answer. He's the hero. And he began to rebuke Jesus. How full of yourself do you have to be to rebuke God? How full of yourself do you have to be to argue with the Son of God? As if to say, Lord, that thing you're doing, I'm not liking it. It's not going to help my situation. That thing you're doing, it's not working with my agenda. My plans are not that way. My, te- my expectations. <clears throat> in fact, I, mean, I want to show you this again over in Matthew. This was recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to read it to you out of chapter 16 of Matthew. Because in chapter 16, verse 21 of Matthew, Remember, Simon Peter, in fact, this, it's a lot easier to, rec- to recognize here in chapter 16 how am- amazing it was what Simon Peter said to Jesus. Up in chapter six, uh, 16, verse 16, this is Matthew. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus really told him, You got it, man. You're, you got the right answer. And you're blessed, and God's speaking to you, and that's where you're getting this. He was the hero. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And... What was it? What was the motivation we saw over there in Mark? Jesus said to Peter, you're setting your mind on, not on God's interest, but on man's interest. That was the motivation. God said that the motivation that Peter had was that he was setting his mind on man's interest instead of God. Peter had an objection. Peter had a quibble. I mean, this whole idea of suffering, this whole idea of death, this whole idea of a cross, this whole idea of being raised on the third day, that didn't fit with Simon Peter's agenda. See, he'd already begun to plan what it was going to be like. You know when when you go riding into Jerusalem and you take your place at the throne of the of, of, of David's throne as, as you're going to, and I'm going to be right there by your side. And he was planning all these things, and we're going to take care of the Romans, and we're going to do this. And we're all of his expectations were going to be put to the test. In fact, they were going to be dashed because this whole idea that Jesus was going to be put on trial, that he was going to be whipped and beaten, that he was going to be Hung on a cruel Roman cross. Listen, that upset all of the plans of Simon Peter. All of his security plans, all of his future plans. It denied his priorities. And listen, so often our expectations, so often our agenda. A lot of times my plans and your plans can and will come into conflict with what God has planned for us. God may have something for you that you don't have any idea about. Peter just flat out said it. That ain't going to happen to you. Again, with the Oakey translation of the Bible, that ain't going to happen. Sometimes, well, I'll just go ahead and say it out plain. A lot of times, the greatest enemy of God's best for our lives is good enough. And what I mean by that is, hey, I've got it pretty good. I seem to be going along all right. Everything seems to be doing what I expected, and everything's kind of comfortable, and maybe it could get better, but boy, this is pretty good. And a lot of times, God has a best for us that might cost us a little bit of that pretty good, might take us out of that pretty good and through some deep water before we get to it, but God's best is somewhere else. Listen, a lot of times, the biggest enemy of God's best for our lives is good enough. Pretty good. I was roofing a house several years ago, with a guy by the name of Jim, old cowboy. He's up there on that roof in cowboy boots. I thought, you're crazy. But we were doing it together, and so he would he would lay them out a while, and I'd hammer them, and then he, I'd lay some out, and he'd hammer them. We were hammering it instead of using a gun. And, uh, and we looked back on a couple of those tiers, and I'm telling you, they were crooked. Oh, my goodness. Look, looked like a worm going down there. And I said, Jim, we're not doing very good. I mean, look at these look at these lines. He said, you'll never notice it from a galloping horse. And I thought... But don't we need to pull them up and redo them? He says, no, 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 no. Ain't nobody ever going to notice that. You and I are the only ones ever going to be on this roof. I thought, all right, it's not my house. Never notice notice it from... That's kind of like we say at the post office, is good enough for government work. <clears throat> now, we never say that because we're not part of the government. But the idea that it's good enough, the idea that, no, I like the way it is, the way that I, I'm comfortable with where it is, Peter was not tracking with the idea that Jesus had, that I had come to this earth, that's what Jesus was saying, I've come to this earth to be put on trial. I know it doesn't fit with your your ideas, Simon Peter, but that's the way it's got to be. I have come to this earth for a beating. I've come to this earth for a cross, for a tomb, and thank God for a resurrection. Even though Simon couldn't see past the, wait a minute, you're upsetting my apple cart. Peter, in fact, when he took Jesus by the arm and began to rebuke him, Here one minute he's the hero, the next minute he's a zero. Can you imagine that? Here you are, you got your name in Scripture, you went from hero to zero in seven verses. Poor guy. But don't be too hard on the apostle, because we all have our agendas, we all have our expectations, we all get comfortable where we are. Some of us even have idols of security and comfort that we've set up, and and nothing better get in the way of this thing that I've planned, of our control, and then God starts to move, God starts to lead, God starts to open doors, and we're headed in a direction we never expected, or maybe God closes a door that we always thought would be open. And what do we want to say? Right here in 2019, we want to say, Whoa, Lord, that's not quite quite what I had in mind when I committed. I mean, Lord, when I surrendered to missions, I was thinking about Palm Springs. Lord, when I said I'd be a church planter, I was kind of thinking about Honolulu. You know, I mean, Lord, when, when I said I'd follow you, I didn't think it was going to be into the inner city. All those scary people, Lord. I wanted to do prison ministry, but what I meant was angel tree at you know at Christmas time. A lot of us follow in the footsteps of Simon Peter. Simon Peter is so off the mark, rebuking the Savior that it actually says in the way you kind of from the language there in the Book of Matthew, Jesus turned his back on Simon Peter, Turn to the rest of the apostles to get thee behind me, Satan. How would you like for Jesus to call you Satan? adversary, enemy. Wow, that would sting. Kind of reminds me of the people that are going to stand in judgment over in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, to the, there are going to be some that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And, and, and didn't, we, didn't we do mighty, many mighty works in your name? Lord, didn't we do a lot of busy work? Didn't we keep things going for you, Lord? I mean, after all, aren't we something? And what Jesus says he's going to say to those people is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But they said they were casting out demons and building churches and and doing all kinds of busy work, but Jesus called it iniquity. You know why? Because it wasn't what he called them to do. That's what they kept busy doing. And, And the same Lord who had to rebuke Simon Peter has to rebuke those people. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. You were never one of mine. And I'm convinced that there are people in churches all across America keeping busy for Jesus who really don't know the Lord. The question that confronts, the quibbles that challenge. And now finally, and we're going to finish this chapter out here, the qualifications that confirm. Let's read the rest of of the chapter here. Verse 34 and following. And he summoned the crowd, and with his disciples he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus gives them a very straightforward, very in-your-face challenge, a very in-your-face qualification to say, these are the things that you can tell. If we, I mean, we all have problems with priorities. All of us need to do more than just commit. You know, when you get married, you don't don't commit your life to that marriage. Well, some of them do. Some people say, oh, I'm committing my life at the altar. If you go to the altar to get married just to commit your life, you might be in trouble. I had to surrender my old life to the new life. But if I'm going to do more than just commit, if I'm going to challenge, be challenged by the Lord, what is that going to look like? How can I know that in the morning when I look myself in the mirror, is that guy answering the question, who do you say that I am, the way that it needs to be answered. What does that actually look like? And I just read a little bit of it there. How can I be sure? You know, Jeff, every so often, he'll, he'll go to reminiscing about his dad. And he'll talk about how his dad was a leader in his church, and his dad was a leader in the community here in Blanchard, and a leader in his family. And, and, and you can see, he'll start to get a little misty-eyed sometimes. You know why? Because Jeff's dad was the real deal. And all of us know people. Who They're the real deal. Well, how can I tell for myself that I'm the real deal? Day by day, moment by moment, how can I do that and know that I'm making God's interests my interest? How can I know that I'm making God's plans my plans, God's goals my goals? I want to know, is He truly Lord in my life? Because if He is, then it's only fitting that these things are going to be true in my life. What does Thou Art the Christ look like in everyday language? Well, first of all, if you look in chapter 8, verse 34... You'll see it written out. There's three steps to this process. It's kind of like finding a pulse on somebody. You know, there's several places on somebody's body you can check for a pulse. You can check in the neck. You can check in the brachial artery. You can check in the femoral artery. You can go to all different places. Okay, first pulse point, if you will, of somebody who's genuinely living the life they're supposed to live is that in verse 34 there where it says, Deny yourself. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Okay, that's number one. What does that look like? I mean, we live in a culture of self-gratification. We live in a culture of self-indulgence. We live in a culture that is full of self-preservation. In fact, you can go to the grocery store on your way home today, and you'll see all the magazines that are there. What are the names of those magazines? Self, Us, Them, uh, We, People, me uh cosmopolitan all these things all about how to make yourself happier better homes and gardens so i'll be more in the know so i'll be more hip and in a culture that teaches us to look out for number one you know what putting somebody else first is going to look totally radical it's going to look so radical when you say i'm not the most important person here but i'm going to make you the most important person here that is the number one indicator That's the number one indicator that you're the real deal in God's kingdom, in following after God. The idea that you've given up up your rights. I no longer have autonomous control. I've given that over to someone else. The idea that you would give up your agenda. That's what it means to be denying yourself. Because listen, following Jesus, we were talking about this in youth this morning, following Jesus may may mean leaving behind some security. Following Jesus may mean leaving behind some, some luxury and some things that you're used to. Following Jesus may mean you leave behind some freedoms. What it really means, though, is putting self under control, under your control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And it's easy for me to say that. Okay, I'm putting myself under the control. of the, Okay, it's easy to say, but you know what happens? Our pride and our ego, our self, has been large and in charge for so long, <laughs> that stinking pride will not go quietly into the night. Somebody, they look at the Lord and they say, yes, I hear what God has to say, I see what the Bible says, but, but I know best for me. I'm smarter than that. I take orders from no one because it's my life, it's my plans, it's my future. Some people so sold on themselves, they will argue with God. In fact, they think that they're doing God a wild favor just if they show up and they're doing Jesus a great favor. But as long, listen, as long as you insist on a throne, you want to be on the throne of your own life, Jesus won't be. You want to have a kingdom where you wear the crown, guess what? Jesus can't. If you're somebody that says, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but in my own way and in my own terms and my own way, you're really not following Jesus. So many today, claim, You know, I want to follow God, or I'd like to be saved, or I'd like to. I mean, I used to go to that church, where, but I guess got philosophical problems with the faith. They don't have philosophical problems because if you genuinely look, in, genuinely look into the philosophical side of things, the Christian faith is perfectly reasonable. Somebody says, "Well, I've got theological problems." Well, you might. You might have some questions. But a lot of people, it's like, I have intellectual problems with the faith. I just can't just go blindly jumping into faith. Well, there is no blind faith in the Christian faith. We have the witness of the Spirit. We have the witness of the Word. We have the witness of creation. We have the witness of our conscience. It's not a blind leap of faith. It is an obvious normal step into faith. It's not intellectual problems. It's not theological problems. It's not philosophical problems that keep people from faith in Christ. It is simply that same old thing, that stinking pride. It is self. When we refuse to come to Christ as our Lord, as our substitute, we're deciding to go our own way, saying, yes, I see I could go. Heaven is, is there, but I've chosen to go another way. So Jesus says, number one, if you want to follow me, You have to deny yourself. Verse 5 through 38, when it says, as he says there, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. To lose your life does not mean dying. He's not talking about dying here. He's talking about saying, I'm going to say my life is now your life. The operative word there is your. This is where the distinction comes. I mean, when I was talking about the Romanian pastor, and he was saying here's commitment and here is surrender, which one's stronger, which one's real, See, commitment means I'm committing my life to Christ. I get to stay in charge. Self still reigns. I'm going to follow Christ as long as it's comfortable. I'm going to follow Christ as long as it's my way of doing things. And then, hey, I may get off this train. But when I surrender myself to Him, when I say to Christ, as He says I must, I'm going to deny myself and and, and I'm going to follow you. I surrender myself to Him, make Him Lord of my life, putting Him on the throne. It's it's the same thing as if you signed a contract at the bottom and then said, here, Lord, fill in the rest. I've already signed it. It's your life to live through me. Here it is. I've signed the contract. Now you fill in the rest. I can keep my rights. I can keep myself. I can keep it all. And in the end, guess what? I'll lose it all. That's what it says there in verse 35. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And see, the idea being, if I will surrender, if I'll deny myself, if I'll lay down my life, in the end I'll get it all back. And heaven as as a help. So the first point of recognition, the first pulse, deny yourself. The second one, very quickly, take up your cross. The person who accepts the burden of a cross is willing to carry it to the end. Because if you take up a cross, you're not going to a picnic if you were to take up a cross in that day, you weren't going to the marketplace. You were going to a place of humiliation and death. You think, wow, are you trying to run people off? No, Jesus wasn't trying to run them off either. But he was telling people that you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. In other words, the cross that Christ has for you. You know what, for your, some of you, your cross is going to be to work in a Fortune 500 company making seven figures a year. What a cross to bear. But for some of you, that'll be God's call for your life, something similar to that. For some of us, the same God will call some of us to go work with lepers in a, in a little colony somewhere, making almost nothing, barely enough to eat. Which one's better? They're both equally valuable and meaningful to God if He's the one who's calling you to do it. When the hearers of Jesus heard this phrase, they knew what it meant for someone to take up a cross. They were going to a place of sacrifice. Jesus wasn't trying to run them off. He was trying to tell His disciples, listen, I want you to know, when you start to follow Me, people are going to call you foolish. When you start to do things that don't seem normal to everybody, people are going to call you crazy. When you take up your cross, somebody will say, oh, wow, why would you go into the ministry? You could have been this. You could have been that. You could have gone to the stage. You could have gone into politics. People are going to say you're wasting your life. But Jesus said that the second sign of a true follower, not only will He deny Himself, but that he will accept God's assignment. You may have to accept God's assignment and then wait for it. That means you'll also accept God's timing. Not only that, but you may have to accept God's reward because your reward for what God calls you to do may be very little here on this earth. But notice again the negative words in verse 38 where he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. He says, for that one who says, no, no, I'm not going to deny myself. I'm going to go my own way. Jesus says, well, I'll, I'll let you do that. But don't be surprised if I'm ashamed of you. Well, the reverse of that is, if you will lay down your life, if you will deny yourself, if you will take up your cross, Jesus will welcome you into heaven as one of His own. Do you remember when Simon, not Simon, when Peter did it again? When Stephen, book of Acts, Stephen is being stoned to death. And as he's there in the throes of death, as the rocks continue to fall upon him, he looks up and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. You know, Scripture tells us that Jesus went and sat down at the right hand of the Father to be the the Lord, to be the Master, to be the King. But when Stephen passed from this life into the next, the Scripture tells us that Jesus stood up to receive him. I can just hear it. Father, this is Stephen. He's one of my faithful. I'm, in fact, the way he says it there, I can almost picture Jesus doing this. Hey, Michael, Michael, come here, come here, come here, Michael. Michael, the archangel, you know. Michael, come here. This is Stephen. I want you to meet him in person. Stephen, this is Michael. He's just an angel. Gabriel, Gabriel, come here, come here, Gabriel. Introduce, you go to heaven as one of his He's going to be proud of you. He's going to stir up heaven saying, Hey, here's Clint. We never thought he'd make it, but here he is. No, that's not what he's going to say. He's going to say he was faithful to the end. Here he is. Start the band. Why? Because he's one of mine and Jesus is willing to call him one of mine. But you can't truly do verse the third point until you've done one and two. Deny yourself. Take up your cross, and then when Jesus says, follow me, unless you've denied yourself by dethroning pride, unless you've laid yourself in the dust by taking up your cross, only then are you really ready to follow the Lord Jesus. His talk is cheap, but real surrender will cost you all. But I'm telling you, it it is all so worth it. The only real life is found in Jesus. Only eternal life is found in Jesus. The only real satisfaction that you'll ever find is in Jesus. Everything else is just a pretty substitute. It's just a pretty substitute. As I close, I want to say the answer that you have for that question is going to determine your destination for all of eternity. Who do you say that I am? famous man several decades ago said that there are only really three answers to that question. Who do you say that? that I, the Son of Man, am. There's only really three. You can, he could either be the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. The idea being that Jesus could have been a liar who knew that He wasn't really God, went around claiming He was, wanted to get a big following, but He was a liar and He was a fraud, and everybody, you know, that's, that's one conclusion you could have. He's either a liar, or maybe He was a lunatic. Maybe He really thought He was God in the flesh. Maybe He thought He was the Messiah, but He was a lunatic. He's really just crazy. He was either... A liar or a lunatic, or he really is and was and always shall be who he said he was, the Lord. And you get to make the choice. You get to say which one you think he is. You can call him a liar and walk out of this place congratulating yourself for being so smart and so wise and so cosmopolitan, and hey, I knew it was all fake. You can call him a lunatic and say, well, poor him. Back in that day, you know, they had weird ideas. Or you can call him Lord, and he will save you from your sin and guarantee you an eternity in heaven with him. You know which one he wants? He came into this earth, laid down his eternal glory, and came and bore the sins of the world on a cruel Roman cross for you. And he offers you the gift of eternal life today. I know I'm preaching mostly to saved folks, but there might be one or two here that don't know the Lord. Or maybe you say, hey, I did that a lot of of years ago, but I've kind of strayed and wandered. We're going to have an invitation in just a moment. And if you'd like to reestablish that relationship that you've had in the past with the Lord, He's willing to do that. His arms are still open wide. He's not shaking His finger at you. He's ready for you to turn in repentance and come back to Him, whether for the first time in salvation or again for a rededication of your life. Let's pray. Thank